<laughs> Man, I got to stop crying at that. So good. It was such a special time last week to gather with you all and to see those baptisms. Such a special time. And, you know, we get to gather again this Sunday and we get to begin a new book of the Bible, uh, the book of James. I'm so excited for this morning. But before we jump into this, uh, this new book, I want to start with a thought. I want to start with a thought about expectation. And this is something that God uses to connect with his people uh, because expectation is closely related to faith, and we know that God always works with faith, right? And, and so this idea of expectation is the idea that as we approach God, we can know something about the character of God. We can know that God is good, that He is loving, that He is right. And so then when we come to Him, we can expect that He's going to work in ways that are consistent with His character, if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as we've been saying this morning, then we know that he will always work for us. And, and that's the benefit to us. And it gives us this confidence that as we come to God, we know that we will receive from him. And, and you know, expectation is something that is really good to have. But sometimes, you know, God just likes to surprise us. And that definitely happened to me last Sunday when I got to baptize my son, uh, Caleb. <laughs> You know, looking back, the Lord was just setting me up for that one. Uh, I had no idea what was coming, and we had been telling our son for a couple of years that we wanted him to wait to get baptized, and it was for good reasons. We wanted him to be old enough to where he would remember it. We wanted it uh, to be that it would be his decision, and he knew what he was doing, but man, that boy knew what he was doing. And, and for instance, you know, uh, when, when my son was about four years old, he used, to, um, he used to take French fries and he would dip them all the way into his ketchup, like past his fingers. And he'd say, look, dad, I'm baptizing my French fries. <laughs> so he knew that baptism was submersion, right? And, and so he came into that service with confidence, I believe, that he wanted to get baptized. He, he was dreaming about the day when he would be submerged in water as a way to show that he has been submerged in the love of God through Christ Jesus. And so here I was last week teaching the service on Acts twenty two sixteen. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. And that I'm just saying, that was a setup. God just cornered me right into that one. And so, you know, when I turned and I looked at my son, he, he did this. He, he went, <laughs> you know, like he knew. He came into the service expecting to get into that water and to be baptized. And he sure did. And so when I saw him, the Holy Spirit spoke right to my father's heart for my child. And, and the Spirit said, what are you waiting for? Your son wants to be baptized. And so, look, I was definitely surprised last Sunday. Um, but reflecting on it throughout the week, it was just the kind of thing you'd expect God to do, right? I was reminded this week about God's joyful, and, and if I could even put it this way, God's playful character with us. He just loves to set us up so that he can do these beautiful and surprising things in our lives. And so this morning, as, as we start a new book of the Bible, it's a book that I expect is going to bring transformation for many people's lives because this book has some astonishing wisdom, wisdom that, that if you receive it, 
it'll just transform you from the inside out. And so, open your Bibles to the book of James. And we're also going to flip on the lights so you could read your Bible. So, we'll, we'll hit the lights there for a second. Noah, can you hit the lights, brother? Yeah, the main lights. Thanks, dude. I know we like the kind of ambiance in here, but I want to make sure you're reading your Bible along with me. So, with your Bible open, we're going to be in the book of James. And and I want to start our time this morning with a prayer, a prayer that hopefully you would all be able to agree with in faith. And it's, it's a prayer that would be both of expectation, that we would expect that God is going to minister to us by the things that we hear in the book of James, but also a prayer that God would surprise us, that God would do something in us and through us that we didn't even have plans for. And so I just believe that the Lord would want to do this as we make our way through this book together. So join me in prayer. Lord God, we come to you thanking you for your consistent character, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. And, and although in our lives we are always changing, we are always being molded and, and, and transformed, God, you remain the same. And your word remains the same, and it is true, and it is living, and it is active, and we believe that your word is going to come into our hearts, and if it's received, it will produce faith, and if it's lived out, it will produce wisdom, and God, we come expectant for the things that we will hear today, that they will be true in our lives. But God, would you also surprise us? Would you do things in our lives that we didn't even have anticipation for, and do it all for your glory and for our good? And we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. James chapter 1, starting at verse 1, we read this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So first we see that this letter was written by James. And there are many James in the Bible. Uh, My son reminded me today that that's actually my middle name. Um, And, you know, James was a common Jewish name at that time in the first century, Uh, James is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Jacob, and there are several men in the Bible with this name. We can think actually about how Jesus had 12 disciples, and two of them had this name. There was James, who was the brother of John, who were the sons of Zebedee, and and Jesus gave them that playful nickname, Sons of Thunder, because they kind of had like a hot temper, you know? And then there was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And, you know, there's a few other James that we can list off from Scripture. But it's agreed upon by most biblical scholars that the one who wrote this letter is the James, that is, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, Jesus had another half-brother named Jude who also wrote a letter in the New Testament And you know why I'm calling these guys the half-brothers of Jesus, right? 
Well, because Jesus, James, and Jude all had the same mother. Her name was Mary, but of course they had different fathers. Jesus' father is God. Jesus was born to Mary when she was a virgin, whereas James and Jude were born after Jesus, and they had Joseph as their father. So after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph came together and they had more children. And Joseph raised Jesus sort of as an adoptive father, but Jesus is God's only begotten son. Jesus had no biological father. And so the Bible records that Jesus had at least six half-siblings. We are told that he had four brothers. Their names were James, Jude, Joseph, and Simon, and that he had at least two sisters. It just says plural, sisters. So he had would have had at least two. And that was the family of Jesus. And they grew up together in a small, obscure city in the northern part of Israel called Nazareth. And the Gospels tell us that once Jesus began his public ministry, his family thought that he was out of his mind, thought he was just nuts, going around claiming the kingdom of God, saying that he's the Messiah. And they even tried to have an intervention with him. One day, Jesus' mom and brothers came to a place where Jesus was teaching, and they sent someone in to call for Jesus, and and so this person came in to Jesus and said, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, and, and they're looking for you. And then Jesus, there in that room, said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking around at those who sat around him, listening to him teaching, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Look, this is something that James eventually realized and will pick up on even in this letter, that to be a child of God is to be one who does the word of God. See, James didn't believe that his older brother Jesus was God until after he rose from the dead. By the way, side note, Jesus understands something about how it's difficult to minister to your own immediate family. But look, James ended up coming to believe in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're told that Jesus appeared to James after he had risen from the dead, and that James did end up believing. And of course, why, why wouldn't he believe? You have to imagine that James always knew that there was something unique about his older brother. He probably grew up hearing his mother Mary saying, you know, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? You know, and well, that's hard to do. He's perfect, right? But here is where we see this amazing truth about James being the half-brother of Jesus, is that by believing that his brother was indeed God, he ended up becoming a full brother of Jesus. Because when we believe in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are born again. We are adopted into the family of God with God as our father, Jesus as our brother, and And therefore, we are brothers with Jesus. James was able to say then that he was both a biological brother of Jesus and a spiritual brother of Jesus. And in my estimation, that makes a full brother, right? And so finally, James was a man 
who had received the indwelling Holy Spirit, where now he could actually become more like his brother Jesus. He had the power and the enabling to actually look more and more like Jesus. And so what's interesting, though, in all of this is that James doesn't introduce himself in this way at all. Instead, he introduces himself by saying in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, you might expect James to sort of pull some rank here to say, hey, (laughs) I grew up with Jesus, all right? I know something about the guy. You know, listen to me. But instead, he chooses to, to speak to his relationship with Jesus in the spiritual relationship that he had with him, that Jesus was God and Lord to James. And so while James was the brother of Jesus in every sense of what that word means, he decides to introduce himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word servant in the Greek is the word doulos, and it is better translated slave or bond slave, a servant that was bound to their master. And a bond slave at this time was somebody who was bound to their master, to their Lord, by choice, because they loved their master. In Israel, a slave would fulfill their debts, and after seven years, they were to be released from slavery. But after seven years, if the servant decided that they wanted to remain in the house of their Lord because of their kindness and because of their care and because they loved their master, then, then that person could become a love slave, this word doulos, and they could receive a mark of ownership having belonged to their master. And that's the kind of relationship that James had with Jesus. He had this dual relationship, one of both a loving family, but also one of humble service. Therefore, in the greeting of this letter, we're already seeing this idea of humility. Humility. Something that's going to be spoken of with high regard throughout the book of James. Then James tells us who he is writing to by saying, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, much can be said about this, but, you know, we're only in the greeting, so we've got to kind of move on a little bit. But this letter of James is considered to be a general epistle, meaning that it is for all believers to read and to understand. But by referencing the 12 tribes, it lends us to think that James was originally writing to a Jewish audience. And the book of Acts tells us that James was a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem, and so he was a pastor to many Jewish Christians. But we know as the gospel beginning in Jerusalem and going to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth that that God's people would be scattered throughout the the world, both by persecution and just by the word spreading. And so there were Jewish Christians being dispersed throughout, and that word dispersion can literally be translated scattered seed. That God's scattered seed is all over the world, and his, the seed of His Word is coming to us, and it's coming to us right here this morning. So, just with this background, I felt that this would be important for us to sort of set the stage as we get into that book. But listen, James doesn't, he just doesn't waste any time in getting right to the point. James is a book that as we get into verse 2, you're going to see we just dive into the thick of it. His letter is direct and to the point. 
It's the kind of, it's the kind of book that just hits you between the eyes with truth. You know, it's, whoa, what was that? You know, James received the nickname James the Just because of the way he would say things that were true. He would say it clear. He would say it direct. You know, he was just kind of a straight shooter kind of guy. And that's what we're going to see through this book. And so let's dive right into verse 2, where we see right off the bat this big command for Christians who are enduring through trials to endure through it with faith. And so verse 2, we read, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, James is talking to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. He's talking to people who know God as their father, Jesus as their brother, and they have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them as their helper. And you know, it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in the life of a Christian that helps us to know that we are children of God, that, that, that we actually belong to God in this way. You know, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, which tells us that the definite mark of being a child of God, if you're a child of God, here's what the Holy Spirit's going to tell you. It's going to tell you how much the Father loves you, and He's going to tell you how much you must suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit tells us. And that is how we know we belong to the family of God. Now, there's been plenty of teaching in recent months as we've been going through the Bible about the place of suffering in the life of a disciple. The place of persecution, afflictions, trials, whatever you want to call it in the life of a believer, and that by faith, love, and hope, we can endure through any kind of hardship. So James was also no stranger to the place of trials in the life of a believer. And so he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, notice he doesn't say, if you meet trials. He says, when you meet trials, count it all joy. Now, what does this mean, to count it all joy? Counting it all joy looks like this, is that when you come into a trial, you think deeply and deliberately about the trial that you're going through, and you choose to come to a decision of joy. You choose. It's a choice. It's an act of your will where you're saying, what I'm going through and look, the, the trial itself is not joyous. I don't think anybody goes through the trial like happy clappy, this is joy. We're going through hardship. We're going through difficulty. We're going through things that hurt and are painful emotionally, spiritually, physically, all the different ways that trials. There's not the joy in the trial. There's the joy in the decision that as I go through this trial, God is with me and I trust him and I believe him with faith. So this command to count it all joy, it's only possible if you have the Spirit of God and the grace of God. It's only available to those who have put faith in Jesus. You need to have faith in God 
to count it all joy when you meet trials in your life. Again, it, otherwise it's impossible because if you don't have Jesus, when you meet trials, you know what it's probably going to produce? Anger and bitterness. In your own ability, as you meet trials, you might be able to count some of them joy, but to count all of it joy, that can only happen for those who have given their lives all to Jesus. And that is what God is looking to have, right? He's looking to have all of you. And the reason why God is looking to have all of you is because He wants all of you to be conformed to all of Jesus. And so when the believer meets a trial, they're able to count it with all joy because with faith, we are trusting entirely in the Lord. We are casting ourselves entirely into the care of Jesus. But let's address these trials. What are we actually talking about when we say that we would go through a trial? Notice the words that James used right before talking about trials. He says, that there are various kinds of trials. That word various kinds can be translated many colors because the trials that will come into your life will come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and colors. They come to us like a job loss, a financial burden, a challenging relationship, a cancer diagnosis, and that's just the blue, the green, the red, and the yellow. They can come to us in all different shapes, sizes, and colors, and so there are too many kinds of trials for us to try to go on describing all of them here this morning. So I just have to say this, you know what a trial is. You know what a trial is because you have been through some. You might even be going through a trial right now. And I could spend this time trying to identify what kind of trial you might be going through as a Christian, but I'll just say, you'll know a trial when you're in it. But the question is, my friends, is God's Word is asking you, will you see your trial through the lens of faith? If you see your trial with eyes of faith, then you can count each and every trial, no matter the, the color with joy, because you know that it is by trials that your faith is being tested. Your faith is being tested. See, God allows trials to come into our lives for the purpose of our faith being tested. This idea of testing is that God is seeking to find out the genuineness of an object. And in this time, metal workers would test precious metals in fire to find out their purity. And Peter picked up on this idea with a similar instruction about how we endure through suffering in his uh, letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. Look what he says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's been said that a metal worker knows when gold has been refined to purity when they can see their own reflection in the gold. 
And so what God is doing as He scrapes the dross out of our lives through the trials, He is doing the work of making you look more and more like your brother and your Lord Jesus. He's wanting to see God's image in your life. Now look, I want to make a distinction here before we move on from verse 2. And it's this, is that trials do not produce faith. Trials test faith. How is faith produced? Faith is produced by hearing the Word of God, by believing that it is true and accepting it. When we hear the Word of God, faith is produced in our lives, but then trials come into our life to test that faith to determine your faithfulness. So trials do not produce faith. Trials test faith. Made me think of a, a off-the-cuff analogy, seeing my daughter sit right over there. My daughter was memorizing a scripture about how a, we actually just studied, a worker need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And she was, she probably has it memorized better than I have it. And, and she was memorizing that scripture, and, and then in that week, as she had been memorizing, her faith was being tested. Does she believe that the Word of God is true? Does she believe that it is true? And so, you know, she, she had a challenging situation at school, and she faced through that situation, and she endured through that trial, and she said, no, you know what? God's Word is true. I believe it, and I stand upon it. And so, God's seeking to test our faith. He's seeking in order that you can have steadfastness then produced, because although faith is not produced by trials, you know what is produced? It says it right there in our word, steadfastness. Steadfastness is this quality of remaining and enduring through hardship. It makes me think, as I've been watching football recently with, with my son, I think about the linemen who are, you know, holding the line in, in a football game. They, they, they stand steadfast, and they're getting hit and tossed and thrown around from every different direction, and, and, and yet they're remaining in that place, planting themselves in that position, holding their post, remaining on the line, holding the territory so that no offense can charge against them. And this is the picture that we have of standing firm in Jesus, holding the line so that we have the victory. But you know what the best part about it all is? Is that with Jesus, we've already won the Super Bowl. The game is already decided. We've won. And so when we stand, we stand upon the victory and on the promises of God. You know, Christians, we are not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. We've already won. And so think about that going into next Sunday's Super Bowl game. Verse 4, let's move on. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, when faith is tested by trials, it produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness has had its full effect, which means that we've let God do what He's wanted to do in us and through us by the trial. It's speaking to a submission of our will and desire to let God work. So, so when we go through a trial, you know what we come into it with? We come believing and knowing that God has an end goal in mind. And that end goal 
is for his glory and for our good. Friend, God does not take you through a trial just to frustrate you, just to pull some sick trick on you. God brings us through many kinds of trials, many colors of trials in order to be glorified in you and that you would know his goodness. See, in this life of faith, God brings us through trials and testing in order to make us perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And the only way for us to be perfect, the only way for us to be complete, the only way that we can lack in nothing is by being so emptied of ourselves and then being so filled up with the Lord Jesus Christ. James says that God has a plan to make you perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing so that Jesus can become your everything. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? So the way to perfection and the way to completion and the way to lack in nothing, which would mean that we gain everything, is the way of the cross. It is death to self and life in Jesus Christ. See, it was Jesus who was steadfast to the cross, who endured through the great and difficult trial of the cross, despising the shame because of the joy that was set before him, which was our salvation. Jesus endured the cross, and we have been called to follow in his steps. If you are not perfect yet, if you are not complete yet, if you are still found to be lacking, then you can expect that God will still allow trials to come your way to test your faith and to produce steadfastness until steadfastness has had its full effect. Now, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So I can't imagine that there's anyone in this room right now who would be able to say, I'm perfect, I'm complete, I lack nothing. Now, I will say, positionally in Jesus Christ, that is true for every single believer. In Jesus, we are perfect. We are complete. We are lacking in nothing in Him. But our daily practices defy us. There are inconsistencies with our character. And there is one thing that many of us do lack, and it's what James will talk about next, which is wisdom. This is a theme that's going to come up a lot in this letter. In fact, James has been considered the wisdom book of the New Testament, similar to how the book of Proverbs is to the Old Testament. And James says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let, and, and look, this is, should be all of us, and this can be any of us at any time, but especially in a time of trial, he's saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Come and ask God for wisdom for the trial that you have fallen into. Now, anytime someone is going through a trial that, that I know, myself included, you know, we come to seek counsel. We come to people to seek prayer for the things that we're going through. We, why? Because we're coming to seek wisdom, right? And we can find wisdom in a lot of different places. 
in books, in podcasts, in videos, seminars. There is wisdom that can be gathered in many different places, in many different people. And there's a lot of great wisdom out there. But I fear that too often believers miss the first and the best place to find wisdom, which is from God. God, the one who is all-wise, all-present, and all-powerful. So if you lack wisdom, friend, have you considered going to God for wisdom? Again, there's many places that you can go and find wisdom, but there's none better, there's none more pure, there's none more true than the wisdom of God, and God freely gives to those who ask it of Him. This verse really isn't that complicated. I took this scripture, James chapter 1, verse 5, at face value when I was reading through the Bible for the first time when I was 19. I was reading through the Bible in one year, cover to cover, and I remember where I was. I was drinking an iced tea at Mojo Coffee in Goleta when I was reading James, and I came across chapter 1, verse 5. You know, people often ask me, how are you so young and yet have so much wisdom? Because I asked God. I lacked wisdom at one point. I still do, actually. (laughs) I always ask God for more wisdom. I haven't stopped since I was 19 years old. And yes, I am older than 19 years old. I'm 34, if anyone's wondering. But look, a lot of times people think that wisdom comes with age, not in God's economy. You know how wisdom comes? When you ask God for it. Wisdom comes when you come to the direct source and you say, God, I lack wisdom. Do you lack wisdom? If the answer is yes, which which takes humility to say, if you lack wisdom, ask God. God for wisdom. He gives generously to all without reproach. If you ask him for wisdom, he will give it to you. But this comes back to where I started, which is expectation. Where you know something about the character of God, you know how God works. His word is telling you that if you're a child of God and you lack wisdom, you can go directly to the Father and He will give it to you. He will give you spiritual understanding if you ask Him. He gives wisdom liberally, meaning He loves to pour it out, that God has an unlimited supply and He can't wait to just waste it all on you. He will give wisdom to all, to all, all means all in the Greek, to all without reproach, which means that he doesn't sprinkle it out for you and then pour it out for others. It means that when you come, he he doesn't say, oh, you, sorry, bud, you know, your accounts run dry. (laughs) You've got enough wisdom. He doesn't say, you know what, I'd like to see you figure this one out on your own. He has wisdom to give us, a lot of it, as often as we want it. You just need to come to God and ask Him for it and expect that He will give it. Expectation, faith, believing, 
Verse 5 is one of those promises of the Bible that is to be taken at face value. The best thing that you can do here is to call God on his word. You know, take your finger, put it on James chapter 1, verse 5, and quote God's promise back to him. Say, God, will you do what you say in your word for me? You say that if anyone lacks wisdom, that I can just come and I can ask you for wisdom and you will give it liberally to me without reproach. God, will you do that for me? Come humbly, come with a reverence to God, believing that he's able, but also come boldly, come confidently, come with expectancy because God's word says it and he wants to do what his word says. Now, verses 6 through 8 are our final verses for today, but they don't really need to be applied to us. So you can just leave here taking verse 5 as your point of application and go test it out. This is one of those scriptures where I think God would say, test me in this. Ask me for wisdom and see if I don't give it. But verses 6 and 8 are written to make sure that we ask God the right way, which would be humbly and boldly and with faith. Because verses 6 through 8 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So, If you're going to take verse 5, if you lack wisdom and you'd like to have wisdom, go to God and ask Him for it. You're instructed by the wisdom of His Word to ask in faith, but you're told, do it with no doubting. What is there to doubt with God? Nothing. Now, just like there are many colors of trials, there are many colors of doubts. The main doubt that will hinder us from receiving is if we doubt God, if we doubt His character, if we doubt His ability, if we doubt His sufficiency. See, James describes the doubter by saying this, he is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And we're not talking about, you know, that perfect A-frame sandbar that's been at Torrance Beach this last week, just perfect peeling, you know, beautiful little waves. Did you get some of that this week, Nick? Good. Amen. We're talking about that nasty, onshore, blown out, no shape whatsoever, like you do not want to paddle out in those kinds of conditions. See, I I like waves. I'm a surfer, but I don't want to be a surfer in my Christianity. I don't want to be a wave in my faith because a wave of the sea is driven and so is the doubter. A wave of the sea is tossed by wind, and so is the doubter. See, a doubter is a person who is unstable, directionless, and tossed around in that miserable condition of not trusting God at his word. It is the one who cannot take God at his word, and because they don't take God at his word, they're not doers of the word, and therefore their lives are not built upon a firm foundation. They are like stormy seas with a house built upon shifting sand. But I have confidence that this doesn't apply to any of you, right? Not for you, brothers and sisters. Why? Because you prayed that prayer with me at the start of the service to pray for expectation, right? You did pray that with me, right? Okay. If you didn't pray that prayer with me, 
then I pray that you'd be surprised today. That by God's word, it's going to produce something in you where you're going to actually leave church this morning having received something from Jesus. Because I, don't, I just want to make sure that none of us leave church being that person, as it says there, that doesn't receive anything from the Lord. Are you that person who comes to church but so often leaves not receiving anything from the Lord? Look, I get it. I've been there. I know what that's like. But you know, if you come and you hear God's word and you believe it with faith and you receive it as true and you say, God, work out your word in my life. Every single time you come to church, you can leave having received something from Jesus. See, if you're here, though, and you've hardened your heart with unbelief, and you know if I'm talking to you, I'm calling you out right now, or rather the Spirit's calling you out right now. You keep on doubting the goodness and the kindness of God. You keep on living in that miserable condition of wind-tossed waves, You are cursing God for the trials rather than counting it with joy. You are relying on your own wisdom to get you through rather than asking in faith for his wisdom, believing that it's God's hand that will lead you. And you know, God is the God of the open hand, not the God of the clenched fist. What are your hands? Are your hands open to receive from God today? Are your hands clenched at God? Open your hands and receive a blessing from the Lord today. Because none of us need to leave here today in that state of not receiving anything from the Lord. Because if you are doubting that God is willing and wanting to give you what he has told you to come and ask for, then don't expect to get anything in that sort of a condition. For that person must not suppose they will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Charles Spurgeon said, the man who asks nothing gets nothing. See, double-mindedness is this idea of having two souls. It's like you have one mind and soul that believes and one mind and soul that doubts, and your doubt just hasn't died yet. You haven't fully died to yourself and to your own will, and you think you are the one in control of your life. And I know that double-mindedness because I've seen it in my own life. And that double-mindedness is that place where, like, you're listening to what I'm saying and you're wavering and vacillating between, is this true or is this not true? Is it, it might be true for him, but it's not true for me. And you're vacillating between belief and doubt and belief and doubt. And you're like, go on, preacher, keep saying that this is true. I haven't seen it in my life. You have to humble yourself and get rid of your double-mindedness. And stop wavering between two opinions. Stop dancing between God and serving and worshiping yourself. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be God? Will you surrender? Will you sacrifice your own will and say, God, let your will be done? Nevertheless, at your word, let your will be done. See, The way toward single-mindedness, the way toward having one soul that is steadfast and stable is this. Let me say it again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My expectation for this morning is that no one would go out of here today without having received something from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand up together. And as we stand up together, I'm going to invite our worship team up, and and I'm also going to invite our prayer team to come forward. And, And in hearing what you've heard today, you have heard the word of God declared, and let God's word be true. You know, I have concern that too many times we, we give credit, we give too much credit to how we feel rather than what is true. See, God's word is true. Through Jesus Christ, you are children of God. If he is your Lord, then you are his servants. If that is true, then you can count it all joy as you go through any kind of trial with faith. And after being tested in our faith, we are to remain steadfast. And in steadfastness, it's going to have its effect. It's going to bring about perfection and completion and no lack because we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. And that will go, that will go to us when we go to God. When we come to him for wisdom, when we ask and we say, God, I need you. Oh, how I need you. And so, let me pray. And as we pray, um, there's a couple things that I want to lead people through to receive from God today. I want to lead people through receiving the Lord and receiving wisdom. You can't get wisdom until you first receive the Lord. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are God and Savior. Thank you that you are the God and the Savior of James, and he doubted this all the way until you rose from the dead. And yet, he had to surrender. You are my God. You are my Savior. You are my Lord. And through the trials and through the pains and through the difficulties, we see God, that you are good and you're working all things together for for your glory and our good. And so, God, I just pray right now that if there's anyone in this room that your Holy Spirit is speaking to right now and they're saying, I want to become a child of God, I want to have this kind of life. And if that's you, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you, convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and today you want to receive Jesus as your God and Savior because you've never done that before, would you raise your hand up over your head? Praise God. And Lord, we pray for those who lack wisdom. And and Lord, my hand's raised. And and if you lack wisdom for a situation you're in, raise your hand. Amen. God, you see every hand raised of all those who have humbled themselves and said, I lack wisdom. I need the wisdom in the midst of the trial. Raise your hand if you believe you need wisdom. And if you lack wisdom, come to God and ask. Not with doubting, but believing. Ask in faith, and you will receive. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that it brings to us and the assurance that you are working. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.